Welcome to the Ashoka Systems Change Podcast, a new six-part podcast series from Ashoka, the world's largest network of social entrepreneurs. My name is Bregel Barron, and together with Odin Mullenbein, lead of the systems unit at Ashoka Globalizer, we explore some of the key ideas and approaches used by social entrepreneurs to achieve systems change. In these interviews, we discuss key dimensions of systems thinking, like approaches to collaboration, leadership, and crucially funding, through the experience of Ashoka Changemakers, working as systems entrepreneurs. I'm very pleased today to welcome Michael Sani to the Ashoka Systems Change podcast. In 2010, Michael launched Bite the Ballot in the UK, a non-profit social enterprise aimed at removing the barriers to youth participation and empowering young changemakers on a journey of political engagement. Under Michael's leadership, Bite the Ballot grew from an idea in a classroom to a national movement, coordinating record-breaking campaigns, changing laws, and rebranding politics among young and socially excluded communities. Bite the Ballot has been hugely successful, inspiring participants to register to vote in the UK, empowering, inspiring, and informing young people about politics through a network of digital platforms and a grassroots peer-to-peer network. In 2014, Bite the Ballot created and launched the UK's first ever national voter registration drive. Over 444,000 people registered to vote through Bite the Ballot's 2015 National Voter Registration Drive campaign, a world record per capita for a voting registration drive in the Western world. And ahead of the EU referendum, 1.9 million people applied to register in the nine days of Bite the Ballot's hashtag turnup campaign, including 1.1 million under 30s. In 2017, faced with reduced funding, Bite the Ballot started a commercial organization to tailor its expertise to support other organizations to do the same. Michael now runs Play Verto, a holistic, fun way for children to connect and to learn, share opinions, inspire ideas, and collectively build solutions on the issues they care about. So welcome to the podcast, Odin. Great to be here again. I'm very much looking forward to talking to Michael Sani, a great story, a great success story. Can you maybe just give us a few words in advance, a little bit of an overview of what you think is interesting here and what we should look at from a systems perspective? Mm -hmm. In the previous episode, Jordan Kasseloff talked about his shift from helping people directly with Vision Spring to a more systemic intervention with eye lines, like um, changing items in the US government budget and putting eyeglasses on the agenda of development agencies. While he was still working on the same social problem, his role shifted considerably. And the same is true for Jerubili Moria. In leading the international network, CYFI, she had a very different role compared to growing Aflatoon in India. When we tell these stories, it sounds as if these shifts happened quite naturally, one logical step after the other. But that's an illusion. Things could have happened in a number of different ways. Um, It all depends on the decisions that social entrepreneurs make. And these decisions are far from easy. Together with Mike from Bite the Ballot, we want to zoom in on the thought process that social entrepreneurs go through as they shift their roles over time to have more and more impact on a systems level. Great. So thank you very much, Michael, for joining myself and Odin today on the podcast. No, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be with you. So perhaps could we just maybe to begin with, tell us a little bit about your background and what Bite the Ballot does? Yeah, so I think we can link those together nicely. 
I've had a varied background of different professions over the years. I'd, I'd lent my hand at wanting to be an actor and then found myself in the banking sector and got out of there quite quickly by doing a stint of traveling. And it was whilst traveling, met someone that spoke about the teaching profession. And it was the first person I met that spoke so passionately about their work. And so I got home and sort of rallied into a teaching career. And it was whilst teaching business studies at that time, I found myself on the citizenship cover board because we didn't have a dedicated teacher at our school. Later, I'd learned that no one really had a dedicated teacher for that subject. But, you know, three weeks uh, ahead of the general election in 2010, my boss, who was 34 years older than me, asked me if I was going to vote, to which I replied, I don't vote. Politics doesn't affect me. And, you know, his sort of jaw dropped to the floor and he gave me this look of all looks. And I think he really made it real for me how, how I was political by the issues that I cared about and obviously that politics affects everything. And I spoke to students in that one school of which there was over 80 that could exercise their right to vote. And it was the same answer. Oh, I don't vote. Politics doesn't affect me. And that was how Bite the Ballot was born, essentially set out to really challenge the perception that politics is boring and not for the everyday person and equally ignite their power to come together collectively to drive the politics that they want to be part of and the policies that they want to see. So, you know, it's been a, an incredible journey, but one that I guess in the beginning was literally really around igniting the potential of a group of students and scale it up from there. I guess the length of the scale and the breadth of the scale, I had no idea I would take it that far, but it's, it's been one that's evolved over the years and has been important to remain agile and almost have your North Star or your South Star, whatever you would call your guiding light, but be open to shifting strategy and changing in things, but to ultimately always be dedicated to increasing the participation of, of young and socially excluded communities because they tend to be most affected by politics and least likely to be engaged. Fascinating. Can you give us a sense of the scale of the operations that over time? Just a, just a snapshot. Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, when it first started as an extracurricular activity, it was a group of staff and students designing experiences and games that could ignite the passion of other students, let them see the power of participation, etc. So fairly small scale for the first year and a half. And I think approaching 2012, I had been traveling across the country in the school minibus with a group of students and playing these games in different schools and witnessing, you know, the shift of young people that at the beginning, when you first arrive, they'll tell you politics is boring and they're slumped down in their chairs to when you finish a, an hour session with them, the hands go in the air because they want to register to vote and they're making an informed decision to do so. So it's a fantastic beginning, really. Real adventure, you know. And then when I quit my job, we got a small grant and I hired another member of staff to sort of be with me and to sort of then try and take these resources and get them deployed elsewhere, but very much still a direct delivery program. By the time 2014 come, we had managed to secure a substantial amount of funding in the build up to the general election. And so we grew up, I think I had 54 members of staff actually at one point. I deployed people locally, so I hired them, but deployed them in a local council to be bite the ballot of that local area. So they went and did the school and community engagement locally. So they were the local 
by the ballot CEO, which we stood, you know, stood for community engagement officer, but looked fantastic on their CVs because they were the CEO of by the ballot. And then, you know, I mean, really being open post-2015, it was a bit difficult to sort of sustain that level of activity because it was a shift in government, a lot of cuts. And so we had to make a lot of the local staff redundant because the councils sort of couldn't sustain the service level agreement we had. And that was a big part of me coming to terms with this idea that, you know, we are so prone to money and resource that the slightest shift meant that the whole operation can turn on its head. I guess that led us into 2016 when we participated in the Globalizer. And really, I then saw the value in sort of scaling the impact opposed to the payroll, so to speak. And I shifted down to a size of uh, nine staff. And so we went into 2017 with nine members of staff and across a sort of 18-month period had influenced four pieces of legislation. So it's been a real sort of heart monitor, up and down approach to mass staff, small scale. But small scale didn't necessarily mean less impact, if yes, you will. Yes. And what other measures do you use of impact? I guess voter registration. Give us a sense of, you know, what you achieved over the years, just a broad picture. Yeah, so voter registration was one of the fundamental core measurements, really, because you could fundamentally see if you would uh, move the dial. And in order to do that well, we still did direct service and an element of train the trainer, but that was where we really developed the art of understanding campaigning and messaging. So really picking a time in the calendar year where you could coordinate cross-sector campaigns with a simple call to action to register to vote. And we created the UK's National Voter Registration Drive, taking inspiration from what they were doing over in the US but still a completely different ecosystem because the US is, you know, an election is a billion dollar industry, whereas the UK, there wasn't much money thrown at it outside of people trying to lobby political parties. It wasn't big business, big awareness. So the National Voter Registration Drive started quite humbly. First year, 54,000 registrations. The following year, just shy of half a million. And by year three, we reached 1.8 million registrations in a week. And year four, we had achieved public policy change at a government level, therefore eliminating the need for it. So it was a a fantastic campaign. I remember personally standing in the doorways of of supermarkets and at freshers' fairs at universities um, and then coordinating from an office and then being in the civil service when the minister announces the change in policy and credits us. So, yeah, it was incredible. That's fascinating. That's extraordinary impact. And as you say, at the same time, the organization was going through significant changes as well. One of the things that we're very interested in, and you mentioned this, this kind of flexibility or adaptation over time. Now, before when we talked about this, you identified, I think, a couple of key phases in the development of the organization. And before we go into detail, maybe discussing those, could you just maybe identify broadly what they were? I mean, I guess, you know, at the beginning, you were a startup, then a direct service provider. Maybe just a word or two on each of those four or five different phases and and what they were about in a way. And then maybe we went a little bit more detail. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, in the beginning, as you say, a startup, which was very much exploratory, testing the games and resources, then a direct service provider, effectively, really the number of staff you had was the direct correlation to the amount of people you engaged, shifting that towards a sort of a a campaign model. So key moments in a calendar year where you could then deploy resources and operate a little bit with train the trainer, but deploy 
resources far greater. And then moving, I guess, more into the systems change model where shifting towards an advocacy team, a bit of a smaller team that really coordinated across sector group to tackle the root causes of why you were doing some of this work in the first place. I would say they were the key sort of strategic shifts. Yes. And I take it that from what you're saying, that it's this latter phase that is where you're more working on systems. You see yourself more as a systems entrepreneur, I guess, and working with systems. Could you just talk a little bit about maybe just, you know, you're changing your thinking a little bit from, you know, as you talked about direct service provider. And then when you started to get a sense that actually systems were really important. Well, it's funny, and I often remind Odin of this, but Ashoka had a partnership with Lego and I was made a reimagined learning fellow of Lego, someone that was using play-based experiences and as part of this partnership to see if social entrepreneurs could work collectively. And I had a two-day or a one-day, I forget, but a taster of the globalizer. It was all these other Ashoka social entrepreneurs in the room from parts of the world and we're all listening to Odin. And someone spoke so passionately about their direct service and Owen said so passionately, well, it doesn't matter. It won't make a difference. And I remember that lady was reduced to tears. But I really saw what he was trying to say. And it just dawned on me that actually, you know, in my own case, there's 7.4 million 16 to 24 year olds. And if I'm going from college to college, reaching between 60 and 90 per day, I am only ever plugging the dam. I'm never, ever going to see this shift. So I just loved it. And Ashoka then put me forward to the next globalizer, which was on youth empowerment. And they battled for me because that particular sponsor said no, because they didn't want to do politics. And Ashoka said, look, Mike's more than just politics, etc. So that they got me on the program. And I think that was it for me. It was a, a real dedication to taking what we had learned, never underestimating the power of being in direct service, because it's where we mastered our craft. I wouldn't have understood what it meant to design these systems, design these new policies, if I can't authentically speak about or on behalf of the young people that are in the classrooms, the young people in the communities that are disengaged. So I never lose sight of that part of the journey being an integral part. But now I'm in the phase of, right, what are the coalitions? What are the strategic levers to pull? And how to sort of manoeuvre policy change in a way where you know, in many cases, you're trying to ensure that the system's in the room. There's too many people talking about what needs to change, but they're not really talking with the people that have the power to change it. And I think we were very fortunate that we developed our sort of um, smart network to coin the Ashoka globalizer phase, but we developed it and deployed it right in the heart of the UK government. And it was an advocacy group made up of key players in the space and you would sort of ignite them to come to action if a particular policy warranted their interest, needed them to mobilise, etc. And, and it was fantastic. It was a real, you know, if you permit me, I'll share with you one of the policies that we changed, which really summarises the shift. I mean, we were heavily focused on student registrations. You can imagine the students across the country, one of the highest groups of under-registered citizens. And our approach would be to have a team of volunteers, as many as we can assemble, go to Freshers Week, which is the week when people first arrive at uni, you know, from the fresh students to the year twos to the year threes and onwards, and basically stand under their nose whilst they're trying to sign up to the clubs and the different things and 
collect the new magnets and the bottle openers and get their tins of Red Bull and whatever else was on offer. And we were competing with that noise to get them to spend three minutes with us to register to vote. It just never worked. You got a few, but you never really reached the masses because you relied on face-to-face conversation and it just took too long. And so when we were in the systemic change approach to our work, the government had released a bill called the Higher Education Act of 2017. And so we used to scour the government bills that were going. We would see the government agenda two weeks before it come out. We had a subscription to a piece of technology which permitted us to do so. And so we looked at this bill and we quickly lodged an amendment because the beautiful thing about a bill or an act is when it's on the parliamentary floor, everything's up for amendment. And so we lodged an amendment around um, university enrolment. And essentially, when a student enrolls at university, they give their name, date of birth and address. Exactly the same information as to register to vote. And we got a government pilot in Sheffield and student registration level in one freshers sort of sign on went from 13% to 76%. And the cost for the local authority per registration dropped from £5 per student to 12 pence per student. And so with that, you know, we were able to use the different bits of data relevant to the key stakeholder. So we got 35 of the leading conservative councils to back this amendment not because it was an increase in student registration, but it was a cost saving because actually the money spoke more to them. And so it was a fantastic strategic approach to understand which piece of information would generate the most interest from that particular stakeholder that you needed to align on this policy. And it came down to a vote in the chamber and it went through and become national law. It went through by two votes. Gosh, that's a win. That's a success. You take them where you can. And a very contentious issue in British Parliament today, all of those points you've made about uh, amending bills and the closeness of these votes. That's fascinating. A very revealing example. I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about this development and how you saw your role changing. I mean, you've been very clear about your insight into the power of systems. But even, I guess, prior to that, this, you know, you, you started off as a social startup and then as a direct service provider. So maybe if we were able to just talk a little bit step by step, you might have more or less to say on some of those developments, some of those steps. It'd just be interesting to get a kind of snapshot of how you saw things at the time. What were some of the factors? What was the information that you could see that brought you to see your role changing, if that makes sense? Yeah, sure. I think I touched on it in the beginning, but the experimental nature of the startup was crucial. It was really around co-creation of games and resources. And I say co-creation with the key people that would, um, you know, be using them, teachers and crucially young people, students. And I think that never really left me. Every time we introduced something new over the years of Bite the Ballot, you know, when we moved away from voter registration being the fundamental factor because we quickly realized that when people were registered, they didn't know who to vote for. So we had to quickly create a whole program to help them make an informed decision. So that took us down the technological route. We were the first organization to create and release a gamified voter advice application here in the UK. Got incredible figures. We released it a month before the 2015 general election and got half a million players. And the the data and the insights were phenomenal. So that experimental nature had never left. But I guess I saw my role shifting 
sometimes quicker than the people that were supporting me saw it needed to shift. I'd like to get your perspective on that. So just talking about this, I guess, movement in a sense, the social startup to direct service provider. I know these are continuums. There isn't a moment where, you know, and you're a mix of various things at different times. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, you know, this thought process that went behind that. Yeah, I think it was evidence-based because I was taking groups of kids across the country, as I said, in the school minibus, playing games that we had created. And it was a group of young people from 13 to sort of uh, late teens that had come together to create these experiential learning games that ended with a call to action to register to vote. And we took them to Wales and Newcastle and Scotland and everywhere else in between. And each time it was the same thing. People weren't interested when you arrived and said you were there to talk about politics. They registered to vote by the time you finished the games. And I think the more I did it and the more I realised that fundamentally mainstream education wasn't doing this, people weren't politically engaged unless you went to a more established or, you know, elite education. We were failing these people because we would criticise them for not being engaged, but we weren't giving them the information to ensure that they at the level playing field to want to engage. So it was that evidence that made me quit my job, you know, that yearn to sort of think, well, this is it. This is the calling, if you will. And then obviously having a stage then of the everyone doubt, everyone wondering why you're quitting a career in teaching and, and what's wrong with you, et cetera, et cetera. No one really understands what you're doing. And at the time, I think it's worth saying, I had no idea that was social entrepreneurship. I didn't know that until 2014 when. I was introduced to Ashoka and they said, look, we're considering you to be a fellow. And so there was this, you know, I think then you shift into direct service heavy, right? How do we get our services out? And within direct service, there's an element of train the trainer and there's an element of digitalizing your resources and sort of letting them go as far and wide as you can. That was also a period of experimentation because you had to quickly be considering the next reason why young people weren't participating. Registration was one. Information was another. Face-to-face engagement in the community was another. So each time you stumbled across a hurdle, you had to quickly design a counter to that, if you will. So it's always been a part of that. And I guess, you know, partnerships were critical, ensuring that you could come together with people that could mobilize your resources and, and take them further than if you was doing it alone. So here you are, Mike, as a fledgling social entrepreneur, and you decide you want to do more. You want to impact at a national scale. How did that feel? What what were some of the challenges actually making this happen? Ultimately, I would have quite happily have not done the sort of national scale. You know, when we developed the games and resources, I naively went to Department for Education and Cabinet Office to say, hey, look, there's something missing from the curriculum. We need to ensure everyone's registered to vote and fell on deaf ears. And so it was almost Oh, well, if no one's going to do it, I'm going to have to do it. And that caused quite some friction in the team as well. People were happy remaining local. We had developed a really cool brand. We were known. We had connections with the MP, the MEP, local councillors. And I remember sort of really sort of having some frank conversations with the co-founder that, no, no, this has to go beyond this local town in Dartford. It's bigger than us. And if we get these young people engaged and no one else is, then, then it means nothing anyway. So, you know, that meant establishing an organization, which was cool and exciting and having a company number and all of those things and sort of really owning the fact that, all right, we're doing this. And then sort of going through the stages of becoming a real 
company you know like this is no longer a lunchtime club this is a company we need to produce accounts we need to do this all of those bits that come with it far too many bits that come with it in my opinion the bureaucracy was a nightmare bit I definitely didn't enjoy that side of it but uh and I never have but um you know I did enjoy the idea of how do you think locally and act nationally like what are the levers to ensure that you were culturally sensitive to different communities what were the way you had to shift your resources for different parts of the country depending on which type of person lived there how would you figure out which issues would stimulate which communities because you know it wasn't the same issue that that sort of engaged and made everyone have the motivation to react so that side of it was fascinating and i guess i had the privilege of not being political i didn't have a political education myself i registered to vote at the age of 27 so the fact that i was always on the periphery meant that there was a tendency to never leave any stone unturned. And I truly believe that the beauty of doing that is you find the gems on the outside, which traditional people that come straight in on the top floor, having the same education, lacking the same cognitive diversity, and lack the agility to move because they're almost waiting for the handbook to tell you how to do so. I was forced to do so on many occasions. I felt like I had a grade A plan that was moving, and it didn't move any further because the funder pulled out. Now. Those were the crucial times. Oh, do we all go home and pack up and say we had a fantastic time or do we go again? That constant resilience to recreate yourself, recreate, re-channel, say what you're doing in a different way to tick the boxes of another funder. It was just a battle. It was grueling. It was grueling. I think another consequence of that over the early days especially was I lost my identity outside of Bite the Ballot. I was just Mr. Bite the Ballot. X many hours a week, you know, just, yeah, it consumed me. It was addictive in a way. Yes, and the impact, of course, over this period when you talked about initially something like 50, 54,000 registrations and then 450 and then nearly 2 million. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the changes were that you underwent then to change the scale of your activity? You touched on it a little bit before, but at this time, this is a remarkable transformation. Yeah, I can't take credit for all of those in a way because Parliament underwent a huge shift here in the UK and we moved from paper-based household registration forms to individual electoral registration of which you could go and do it online. And there was a huge hoo-ha in in the UK and this was going to be terrible for democracy, but I literally saw that as an opportunity. You were giving me the opportunity to reach people online and then they could take the action I'm going to ask them to do online. So year one, 54,000 registrations, that was literally people, volunteers across the country, clipboards, as I say, standing outside supermarkets, standing in universities, going into schools, physically making and inspiring people to fill in a form. We send the forms into the councils, the council processes the registration. The following year, when we got just shy of half a million, which at that time was a world record per capita for any Western voter registration drive. It was fantastic because we were communicating online to a native online audience in the main, ensuring that we had fantastic calls to action and they click through to register to vote and they do it all seamlessly. So ultimately, all of a sudden, we had this opportunity to reach people online, which is where the majority of our target demographics were natively more than any other generation, let's say that. 
get them engaged using very good content, very specific calls to action. And then it was this seamless transition to remain on the platform, on their device, and click all the way through to register to vote. I mean, we had some fantastic conversion rates. And I, I guess, again, one of the difficulties at that time was, you know, our funders would say to us, well, how many emails do you have? Your social media following is quite low. But again, you had to make that decision. I've got one chance to send you somewhere online. Do I send you to my website, get you to sign up to my newsletter and then push you to register the vote? Or do I just send you straight to register the vote? And it was always the path of least resistance. So we were this sort of weird anomaly of an organization like, wow, you achieve these huge results, but you have no mailing list. Your social media following is quite low compared to these huge sort of other platforms because we were unselfishly ensuring that the critical thing that had to happen was the only thing. That's very interesting. Organizationally, what was happening over this time, 2014 to 2016? You know, it was high labor turnover, but I think that's just been part and parcel, unable to pay people the types of salaries that compete with other sectors. You know, we would have a lot of people come and stay for a little while, but sort of quickly move on because they knew that we couldn't deliver on their desires economically. That was quite difficult because it meant the only consistent thing was me. And I think that can often be quite difficult because, you know, personally, it means I lose a bit of patience. I don't want to have to explain everything over and over again. I kind of wanted a team that you grew and nurtured and devolved responsibility. So fundamentally, almost every decision laid on my shoulders quite a lot. Even when you tried to devolve responsibility, people would still want to check with you. I think because they were so scared of making a mistake that I would come down on them. But yeah, I take that and I think I could have definitely done things differently at that time. But I did all I knew how. And that was just to survive. It felt like a lot of the times we were just surviving. I mean, we had when we reached the shy of two million registrations, I mean, we crashed the government pool because too many people tried to register the vote at the same time. We partnered with Tinder, Uber, Deliveroo. We had this amazing press coverage. People thought I had a team of 50 and then literally six people in my office at that time. It was just that commitment of people to sort of align and come together was fantastic. And I think it's, you know, not to diverse too far from the subject matter, but that was another thing that haunted me, really, the inability to make the organisation fundamentally sustainable that I could keep these people. I, I carried that burden because I never landed the big ticket. In many cases, I think people still associated me with, oh, you're the voter registration people. You sort of try to say to people, yes, and we also do this, this, this. But it was so difficult when you're a charity because your articles are set and, you know, it was, it's just such a trundling locomotive that just sort of trudges along and can't change quickly so in many cases you're doing things differently while sort of looking like a, a nodding dog agreeing to the things that you've said you'd take the money for and that was also a fundamental part of those key years you know you'd get funding for x and you would do xyz just make the money go everywhere because many funders just weren't equipped with the fundamental need to be at the forefront of the strategic shift that needed to occur to keep going and keep tackling the next issue and keep tackling the next issue. It sounds a very intense time, very stressful time. You're having a greater and greater impact as an organization. How are you seeing your role as an organization change around this time, over this time? 
And can you talk a little bit about when you start to just become more aware of the systemic aspect of it? Yeah, I think um, fundamentally to also comment on one thing that we didn't change and we never jeopardize, and that was the brand. The fundamental nature of always talking in the same voice, even if a funder said, oh, we don't like it that you saw, you're a bit abrupt online. We would never shifted that. And I think that really was credit to the team to not sort of sway or or shift away because we knew the people we were talking to. We knew we wanted to speak to the person that would look you in the eye and say, I'm not political, but I care about X, Y, Z. You know, we've become known as the organisation that did government and politics and never mentioned government and politics. And I think that dedication really paid off when, you know, multi-billion dollar organisations like Tinder come through to your get in touch with us link on the website and send you an email saying, look, we've done some stuff in the US, we want to do some stuff in the UK and we want to partner with you. That, I think, was integral. And the other bits, you know, become a bit of a ball breaker, really. If people produce something that wasn't on brand, then they either left or they did it again. And that was also quite difficult because sometimes you lost sight of, I think I had to learn to stop being a teacher. That was the fundamental shift for me. Because something's created in a classroom environment, then you carry that teacher quality of, oh, okay, yeah, what are the positives and how do we do it again? And, oh, that's all right, let's try again. Whereas when you're a business, you don't have that luxury. Now, don't get me wrong, I didn't shy away from personal development and staff development. But again, that wasn't done at the pace in which you would love to do it if you was a fully resourced organization, you know? So there were some big changes to sort of stop being the teacher and, and actually start thinking like a business. Even though the idea of just being an organization that chased money was painful for me, I had to sort of reinvent myself. Finding therapy was important. Going on the well-being program was a fundamental shift for me to understand the different archetypes, you know, learning to not go into government meetings with a face of funder because I'm so disappointed in what they've done so far to sort of play the magician and not give away how I'm feeling by the look on my face and learn to navigate this complex world and not wear your heart on your sleeve all the time was was very difficult because it was wearing my heart on my sleeve that I guess got us to where we were at that time. So constant juxtapositions on how you should behave and how you want to behave and what's authentic and, and what needs to be put forward. It was a roller coaster, that's for sure. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. So I think you've made it clear that there's a tremendous personal commitment here and at the same time a recognition in some sense that it wasn't sustainable. Can you talk a little bit about how you started to see a changing role for Bite the Ballot and talk a little bit more about the systems perspective and how that all played out? Yeah, I think you touched on it in the question there. The constant lack of sustainability was awful. There was rarely a time when I thought of a strategic plan or a new approach and we had the money in the bank to do it. In fact, it never had been. You, that rigmarole of going through that process of funding and convincing people and then being forced to put square pegs in round holes for their outdated reporting mechanisms. And I think that really moved my motivation to this idea of actually, I'd far more like to have a small team that deployed higher impact through thinking about what needs to change at a system level and constantly be redesigning new programs and new programs and new programs. So, you know, I think it was almost forced upon me. I'd like to think that I would have got there, but the dynamics of the landscape 
almost force you in the direction you have to go if you're open enough to go that route. And for me, I think over the years, when something was put in front of me, a roadblock or, or a sign, you know, in many cases, pick the right path. I didn't necessarily walk it, walk down it the quickest route, <laughs> but I did shift and change, arguably, when no one else thought it was the right thing to do. I mean, I'm having conversations with my board that we were going to sort of close the campaigns team and really focus on research and advocacy. It was like pulling teeth. I dreaded board meetings because I didn't have the type of board that was invested outside of board meetings to understand the need to be agile, to really move and think about this idea of actually one day we might want to close the door for the very last time. What would that look like? You know, people found it amazing. What do you mean? You want to do yourself out of work? It's like, yes, if we manage to fundamentally shift the root causes of why we're here in the first place, it would be an absolute joy to say we're no longer needed. I would say I was forced and motivated to do the changes, partly because I knew I couldn't carry on. Personally, it was too much to keep going, keep being responsible for so many people's livelihoods, keep sort of the cap in hand begging mentality to run a campaign and know that by the time you deployed it, having thought of it, there could be nine months in between and <laughs> all of the things that come with that. So. Yeah, I hope that answers your question. It was a combination of factors. But by the time I had shifted my mind to thinking systemically, and as I say, you know, the Globalizer program was it for me. That was a fantastic 13-week program where each week we're thinking about the strategy, what shifts, what changes, how would we do this? And that was a crucial time. I think at the time we finished Globalizer, we might have had maybe... I don't know, almost 20 staff. And that was Christmas 2016. And I fired and made redundant the campaigns team and brought us down to sort of a team of eight or so. And we then entered January as this new outfit that was going to work to drive policy change, policies that if successful would mean that our direct service was no longer needed. But that was tough. Yeah. Even trying to convince people that you were making the right decision, knowing that that right decision meant they no longer had a job. I mean, that, there's some difficult conversation to have. But in your back of your mind, knowing that you're not here to create a livelihood for seven people, you're trying to reach the 7.4 million. So, you know, it's hard and no one expects it to be easy. And I guess if, you know, sometimes I wish I could have had a bit more of a ruthless streak in me, but they were big big moments that they zapped me of a lot of energy. And I felt incredible amounts of guilt, actually, at times. But looking back, I think it was 100% the right decision. And now today, you know, we're even modeling how to do this to other people. We're, you know, I'm actually making a, a livelihood out of this now. This idea of how do you shift your strategy to change behavior, to change policy, etc. has been an incredible route. And I guess it just points to the fact that you know, you don't get to these places without taking the bullets, without the personal sacrifice, without the pain. But if you're truly committed to actually scaling impact and letting the ego go and not having your logo attached to something because you're just concentrating on the outcome, it's actually incredibly liberating. It's been fundamentally joyful to not need to argue with someone about where your logo needs to go or where their logo needs to go. But just, no, 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 we're going to try and change this law. And if we're successful, then that's the only thing that matters and everyone takes mutual credit for it. And that has been a really enjoyable part of the shift, working 
in a smaller size, coming together collectively, drawing on the expertise and networks of others, but just, you know, it's exhilarating at times, especially when you make that shift and a piece of policy changes or someone introduces a piece of funding to fund something that you've identified as a root cause of, of poor civic and community engagement. It's been, as I said on the podcast so far, it's been a ride, <laughs> a ride for sure. Even right now, as we talk about it, it's quite interesting for sure. Yes, very clear your focus on the importance of working at a systemic level, working on systems change. How clear was it your role within the system and how did that evolve? I guess it was clear in the beginning because I'd had the luxury of building a strategy over 13 weeks and almost was ready to deploy it. So that gave me confidence. Having the support of a team which kind of felt like my own but were external to me in Ashoka and Globalizer and You know, Odin will tell you this. He actually questioned my strategy in the beginning. And uh, (laughs) I took him on and prevailed, which was an extremely proud moment. But, you know, I think the role was predominantly convener. It was around introducing the idea of tackling the system at a root cause level to key players in the ecosystem, many of which I used to compete against for funding. So really come in with the sort of white flag to say, look, I'm no longer going for that same money. I'm not trying to build direct programs now. So that's yours. But where I want you to join me is in this network. And, you know, so it was definitely convener. I guess I was leading the strategy in many cases. So I was coordinating different people across different teams at key points in the calendar year. But ultimately, I guess it was trying as best I can to take some step backs at times, you know, really seeing if I had galvanized that network and that community so much so and that they had embodied the steps we went through to achieve some of our strategic shifts and policy changes without me. And that's the place I find myself in now, a dedication to exit, bite the ballot altogether, to close the company, but the all-party parliamentary group, which is our smart network, if you will, That lives on without me. We've produced a final report with key people that will take that forward. And the hope is that the root causes continue to shift and change. And I'm not there as the sort of uh, convener or agitator or whatever role I played at key times, you know. Can you talk a little bit about your logic and thinking about exiting the company? Again, I think it's a case of well-being first and foremost and a work-life balance, but also it was the fundamental nature that I felt I wasn't making as much impact as I could run in a charity. It's heavily administrative and bureaucratic, very difficult to have to get sign-off on big strategic decisions from a board that rarely engaged to the nature that they needed to. So this idea of actually, I think we could commercialise our expertise and be a for-profit business with purpose and take on clients that wanted to do systems change work, meaningful purpose-driven system change work and play a role in that. So, you know, I'm still in the transition and it takes an interesting twist because two days ago, I was just offered more money than I've had in the last five years to run a voter engagement drive and a get out the vote campaign. So it's almost like I'm romanticizing it, you know, is the universe speaking to me to sort of go out with one last bang and can I deploy this one final time in a way in which um, I ensure that there'll be a space ready for others to take it forward. So I haven't quite made up my mind on that. And I guess it's an interesting point to share because 
I was on this call with the potential funder without the usual desperation in my voice, that usual, we really need this and we're going to do so much good with it and trying to tug on their heartstrings. It was the first time in my life that I was on this call with the straight up full frankness of, if the money's not there, I'm not doing it. You can find someone else. And it was amazing. It was almost like being at the poker table, knowing you've got no cards in your hand, but you're going all in and everyone else will quit because they genuinely believe you've got the best hand at the table. It was fantastic. It was brilliant. Making this idea of shifting away from desperate, we're going to do so much good and we really need your money and you can be attached to it to, no, no, we value ourselves. We know what we're capable of. If the money's not right, we're not doing it. So it was my first experience of that. So as I say, again, the lessons never stop. The learning never stops. You find out more about yourself. You find out more about what you're capable of. And I think the one true quality that's remained consistent and obviously been nurtured by many great people over the years is just I've tried to remain connected to my truth as best I can, that gut feeling, that sort of integral inner voice that we often ignore to our own peril. And I've got better at listening to that over the years, the older I've got, and the more I've sort of had skin in the game in this still relatively tiny space of social entrepreneurship that, you know, not many people know about. (laughs) Fascinating. At the heart of what we're talking about, the smart network, can you talk a little bit about what the smart network looks like and how important a role it played? For me, it was amazing. The first time I did that sort of stakeholder mapping when we were considering what our smart network would look like, and that was incredible to see how many people were in the ecosystem. And then when you sort of map them together, how many people were at least saying they wanted the same thing. Incredible, you know, when you consider their resources and organisation, their network, and what we were trying to do essentially was weave that together. You know, imagine a large needle and thread and they're all scattered and you're just going around and sort of linking them all to one piece of thread and then pulling the thread tighter when the parliamentary ecosystem really gave you the sign that it was time to mobilise. And for us, that was quite easy because it was around the parliamentary schedule, what was being debated, what research and select committees were on at any one time and what bills were being amended. And we deployed our strategy around that. It was like we were ready to go. We knew we had a few fundamental areas, political education, voter registration. And I guess, you know, every time we felt as though we could, quote unquote, hijack a debate with our data and with our network and the names on the network to leverage parliamentary support, MPs, lords, baronesses, etc., to actually vote for particular policy shifts. That was incredible. And it was fantastic because, as I alluded to earlier, many people that you used to compete with fighting for the scraps of the charity sector or the NGO grant-giving sector were now aligned to try and shift the policy. You know, and I mean, we shifted policies around voter registration. There was a a royal charter going through government for the government-backed National Citizen Service Programme, which was essentially a programme for every 15 to 17-year-old in the country to go on a three-week residential in the summer. Now, as you can imagine, you do your soft skills and your um, emergency first aid training and all, and get to know different people from different parts of the country, et cetera, et cetera. But we managed to get an amendment in that Royal Charter, which basically said you can't call this program National Citizen Service 
if these people, if these young people don't leave this program understanding what it means to be a citizen. And a fundamental part of that is understanding the democratic process and being registered to vote so they're ready to participate. And so we got lots of different MPs cross-party. We, we mobilised our network around calling for this, calling for this. And we ended up making it an amendment on the Royal Charter that all participants of the National Citizen Service would be democratically engaged whilst on the programme. So it's fantastic the way in which people mobilised. And as I say, that sort of, um, you know, I mean, to coin a football analogy, it's like being in a Premier League and players are at each other's throats because they play for different teams. But when the national teams get called up, they all come together and go for the win collectively. And I think that was an element of that. It was brilliant. So at the heart of this story, Mike, is this personal story as well. And this question, this ability to understand yourself, to listen, and this inner voice that you talk about. Can you just maybe give us a little bit of a sense of how that evolved your experience of getting more certainty in listening to your inner voice and feeling more confident and how important that was to your success. Yeah, I think that sort of oneness of aligning mind and that sort of gut feeling, that inner voice, some call it soul, some call it heart, whatever you may call it, but there are fundamental differences. For many years, I was camped out just overthinking, overthinking. But the minute I learned to trust and with that trust, that was often making decisions that I couldn't explain. Imagine how hard that is. You know, you've got a team, you've got stakeholders, you've got funders, board, and you've made a fundamental decision and you can't actually tell them pound for pound why you've done that. But you know it's the right one. I mean, it's, it sounds ludicrous even saying it out loud, but it was a big deal for me to keep doing that. And that might be not losing sight of the importance of taking risk. But one fundamental catalyst in that was, again, a program that was part of Shoka, part of Skull and, and other key people, which was the wellbeing program. And that fundamentally was, for me, the ability to break the cultural norm of being a British man who sort of stiff up a lip. If you cry, you cry alone. And if you smile, the world smiles with you. This sort of keep it all in, keep it all in, keep it all in. And really developing the ability and power, I guess, to become a strong, vulnerable man. That vulnerability was incredible because it enabled me to get to know myself better. I wouldn't be so, I guess, judging on my inner faults. I would sort of leave a place for this gut feeling to emerge. And the more I trusted it, the more we moved forward quicker, faster. Impact was more prolonged and more uh, sort of uh, sustained. So it's been a fundamental shift of mine and I've really enjoyed the connectivity of other people that have been on similar journeys because it's fantastic to sort of have those safe spaces where you can come together with especially with other social entrepreneurs and sort of laugh off the things that we've all got in common none of our friends and family know what we do until we have a fundamental milestone everyone thinks you're crazy and that sort of ongoing resilience but I think that resilience is often accompanied by that openness to sort of uh, really listen to your gut feeling because it's what got you there in the first place and if you stay connected to it you can really make these big decisions that not many people do which is why not many people make the big shifts. Yeah can you talk about your ego and how your ego gets involved in general in the work that you're doing and maybe how that's changed over time for you? Yeah I think um for me, it's been an incredible journey with the ego because there's times when you've faced a lot of doubt and often that can be self-doubt because you're very susceptible to the energies around you, especially when they're loved ones. 
And so when the successes start to come, it's only natural to sort of really think, oh, you know, the, the limelight is where I feel most comfortable because I'm, I'm finally getting the appreciation I deserve. But it's deadly almost to camp out there because for me personally, moving away and letting go of the desire of having the logo everywhere or having my name on the quote or anything like that, as soon as I let go of that, there's a liberation, an absolute freedom to make decisions that are not based on exposure, but based on outcome. So, you know, I thank my ego for where we've got to. And, and there's been some unbelievable moments. But keeping your ego in check and redeveloping your relationship with it so that it's not overpowering and overconsuming is, I guess, a fine thing to say. But I guess the journey is to try and remain committed to that. And that's been another part of this work that I've enjoyed, not necessarily needing to be the person associated to all the changes, even though if this is the sort of ecosystem you know, doesn't allow you to navigate that easily because sometimes the person that shouts the loudest gets the money and sometimes the companies that have got the biggest exposure get the other funders, you know, we sort of gravitate to it. So it's not always the easiest thing to do, but the minute you feel like you're aligned with good quality organisations, there's a collective nature to your work, then you can permit yourself to sort of not always have to say yes to the television interview or the quote and things like that. And you can make space for others to do it because that's what keeps it collective. That's what keeps your partners valuing working with you. And obviously, in the end, that's what drives collective impact. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Mike, for sharing your insights, the great work you've done, and for being willing to be so open and, and frank about your journey. And uh, wish you the very best of success with your ongoing evolution and development. No, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been nice. Often with these things, they're the sort of moments when you get to do the reflection that you don't often do because you're on to the next thing, on to the next thing. So it's been very nice and I've appreciated the time and thanks for the invite to come on. And I hope that, uh, you know, whatever I've shared can resonate with some people in some ways and some people in others. Yeah, excellent. That was a tremendous interview with Michael Sunny. He's had a tremendous impact on the youth democratic participation in the UK. What stood out for you in the interview? Over? Quite a bit, actually. But before I go into this, let me repeat a disclaimer that uh, I mentioned in previous episodes, but it's just worth repeating. Providing important services to people in need is still very much needed, even as we think more about the systems that are responsible for these problems in the first place. For many organizations, reaching more people directly is the right thing to do. And I really hope that in the strategy discussions that Mike referred to, I didn't actually make anybody cry by not stressing this point enough. Now, we invited Mike in order to understand the thought processes behind his decisions to change his role over the course of time. So let's see what we got. The first shift was from teacher to social entrepreneur, and that step was motivated by his insight that very little is needed to get people to vote. Emotionally, Mike referred to outrage at the system of political participation. Anger might not be the most healthy source of long-term motivation, but it's actually quite common as a calling to become a social entrepreneur among Ashoka Fellows. Then we had the shift from local organization to national outreach, and that was motivated by Mike's desire to reach more people as officials didn't want to include his approach into the curriculum initially. The new role came with its own challenges, though, including frictions within his organization, battles with bureaucracy and funding issues. And then we had the shift towards policy work, and that was motivated 
by Mike's insight that ultimately new policies would be needed to really address issues around voter registration. But there was also his desire to not manage a big team anymore and to have less fundraising pressure. Emotionally, Mike mentioned the tension between his realization of what is needed and guilt for letting down parts of his organization, including many of his employees that he had to let go. Mike achieved a number of policy changes in this role, but personally, he also enjoyed being part of a larger network of allies and that he could collaborate rather than compete for resources. This is a common theme among Ashoka Fellows that went through a similar transition. Building networks and alliances around system change goals is not easy. Still, just like Mike, many Ashoka Fellows describe being a network leader or a servant leader as liberating. And then the final one was his shift towards an advocacy advisor, which included a personal exit uh, from the all-party parliamentary group, which can now run without Mike. And this is actually a tremendous success. So if you can, this is a, a legacy that he leaves behind and it can keep having impact without him personally playing a role there. So I'm very curious what, what he's up to in the next couple of years. As we go through these changes, there are three things that stand out to me. First, none of his decisions was easy, right? So analytical insights, emotions, responsibilities, and operational issues all had to be taken into consideration and were often at odds with each other. This just goes to show that there cannot be a single guideline for social entrepreneurs to follow when it comes to these decisions. Second, each transition provided a chance to work on the effect that our ego has on being a change maker. Mike enjoyed being in the limelight initially, but then let go and actually enjoyed not having his logo everywhere or being cited in the newspaper, etc. Our ecosystem doesn't always make it easy to step out of the limelight this way, but it becomes more and more important as we transition um, to building networks and alliances. Transitioning towards roles that allow you to have more impact on the systems level always requires some inner work. And as Mike mentioned at the end, that journey never ends. Third, all transitions come with personal trade-offs. I'm very grateful to Mike for his openness and honesty during the interview. Issues like losing one's personal identity outside of the venture, struggling with well-being and similar issues are widespread among social entrepreneurs. And it might sound trivial, but choosing roles that can work sustainably really is important if you want to have systems level impact in the long run. Thanks, Odin. Thank you for listening to the Ashoka Systems Change podcast. We hope you found it interesting. If you enjoyed this episode, please do help spread the word on social media. And also, we would love it if you could leave a review on iTunes or whatever platform you use. If you'd like to find out more, please visit ashoka.org. The opinions in this podcast are personal and do not necessarily reflect Ashoka's position. Nothing said in this podcast should be interpreted as investment advice.